Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metabolism and Menopause podcast. I am your host, Stephanie, and CEO of Vitality OET. We are a women's nutrition, health, and fitness company that focuses predominantly on women's hormones, particularly during perimenopause and onwards. We know that so many women struggle not only with hormonal symptoms during this period in their life, but they also start to struggle with their weight. The old methods of eating less and cutting carbs and doing a ton of cardio no longer works, and it's because your body is inherently different now. As those hormones change, the way we approach fat loss also has to change. So our mission is to teach women about how their bodies change during this period of their life so they can finally reach their health and fitness goals, live a life full of vitality, and feel in control and at home in their bodies again. Today, I am very blessed to have Coach Carriana, one of my head coaches with Vitality OET on the podcast today, and we're going to be talking all about thyroid function, cortisol, and menopause, and how it plays a huge role in fat loss. By the end of this episode, you are going to know how the thyroid actually works, common thyroid issues that we see in women, the connection between thyroid and cortisol and stress, the connection between thyroid and menopause and your menstrual cycle, and how to prevent or help thyroid disorders as we age. We're going to go through our six best tips to help improve thyroid function, improve your metabolism, and help you lose fat um, during this challenging time in your life. Okay, so today we are wanting to talk a lot about thyroid health. It's something that we noticed a lot of women going through perimenopause and menopause are really struggling with. Um, So today I have Coach Cariana on the podcast with me. She has um, had so much experience with women's health and hormones, um, lots of advanced training. I knew from the day that I started doing nutrition coaching and starting my own business that I wanted her to come work with me. So I harassed her for a while until she finally said yes, which is super exciting. So I'm super happy to have her on the podcast here with me as well. Um, but yeah, today we're going to discuss the thyroid because so many women really struggle with this, um, especially as they go through perimenopause and menopause, the rise that we see in hypothyroidism increases quite a bit. So we want to discuss all things thyroid today. There's so many questions. So we're going to cover how the thyroid actually works, common thyroid issues that we see, um, a connection between thyroid and cortisol and stress, which you know is my favorite topic is all things cortisol, the connection between thyroid and menopause and your menstrual cycle, and then how to prevent or help thyroid disorders as we age. So first of all, what is a thyroid anyways? The thyroid is a gland in your neck in the shape of a butterfly. Its activity is controlled by our pituitary gland in the brain, which is activated by the hypothalamus, which is another gland in our brain that tells our pituitary gland what to do. So the function of the thyroid gland itself is actually to take iodine found in our foods and convert it into two specific thyroid hormones. So we have T4 and T3. T4 is thyroxin and T3 is triiodothyronine, which is a mouthful. Um, The thyroid mainly releases T4, and T4 is generally considered to be the inactive form of thyroid hormone, and T3 is considered the active form of it. So once your thyroid releases T4 into the bloodstream, certain cells of your body transform it into T3. And this is because cells that have receptors that receive the effect of thyroid hormone are better able to use T3 than T4, which as we said, was the inactive form. Yeah, so cells in the following tissues, glands, organs, and body systems can convert T4 to T3 for energy. So the thyroid, obviously, um, our liver, our kidneys, muscles, um, the pituitary gland itself, brown adipose fat tissue. This is the type of fat that produces heat to help maintain your body temperature in cold conditions, the central nervous system. So there is so many places 
Thyroid hormone affects every cell and all the organs in our body for regulating the rate at which our body uses calories, so energy. This is going to affect weight loss or weight gain, and that's called your metabolic rates. When we talk about like boosting metabolism and stuff like that, that's how many calories you burn at rest. Thyroid is a huge, huge influence on this. It's also really important for slowing down or speeding up your heart rate, raising or lowering your body temperatures, influencing the speed at which food actually moves through your digestive tract. It affects your brain development. It controls the way your muscles contract. Um, It manages your skin and bone by controlling the rate at which your body replaces dying cells, which is like a normal process. We're constantly breaking things down and building it back up. So as you can see, the thyroid affects so many things in our body. Yeah, it's pretty much just a full body system. Would you say, Steph, that you see a lot of women coming into coaching or going into perimenopause that, that, you know, have like symptoms of depressed thyroid function? Oh, yeah. Like so many, but people never really talk about it or it's like misconstrued as like, oh, it's just part of getting older. Oh, it's just part of aging. It doesn't have to be. Um, There's lots of confounding factors and stuff that are obviously going to influence this. Um, But like, just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal and it doesn't mean it's supposed to happen. Um, so a lot of people get sloughed off as that's like, oh, it's just part of getting old. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to be. Um, and I'm sure as heck going to work really hard to make sure I don't end up that way. Yeah, totally. It's just a lot of doctors say it's just perimenopause. You just have to deal with it, right? Yeah, which is like super frustrating. And like just to invalidate people's like concerns and symptoms is just it's so bad. Like I could go on a tangent forever about <laughs> how much the yeah. healthcare system bugs me. <laughs> There's good things and bad things about it for sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we know how thyroid hormones affect the body, but who or what, I guess, tells the thyroid what to do and how to function and how does it turn on and off? And I think understanding this process is really important because it can help us troubleshoot as well what might be disrupted in the chain of events that might be happening for you too. So the thyroid is under the control of the pituitary gland, um, a gland in your brain, which we had talked about. When the level of T3 and T4 drops too low, the pituitary gland then produces something called TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. Um, If you've ever done any kind of blood work or a blood panel, this is typically what doctors will test is your TSH. This TSH stimulates the thyroid gland to actually produce more hormones. So it's not technically a thyroid hormone itself, but it is a stimulating hormone that communicates from the brain to the thyroid what it needs to do. So under the influence of TSH, the thyroid will manufacture and secrete T3 and T4, thereby raising the levels of T3 and T4 in your blood. Now what happens is that the pituitary gland in your brain senses this and then responds by decreasing its TSH production. So you can kind of imagine the thyroid gland as a furnace and the pituitary gland is like a thermostat. And thyroid hormones are kind of like the heat in your house. So when the heat gets back to the thermostat, it turns the thermostat off. It signals the thermostat that we're hot enough, let's turn you off. And as the room cools, once the heat is off, so your thyroid hormone level drops, the thermostat will turn back on and release more TSH to turn the furnace on to produce more heat, which is your thyroid hormones. Um, The pituitary gland itself is actually regulated by another gland known as the hypothalamus. So as you can see, body systems can be really complicated. There's a lot of like chain of command here. The hypothalamus is part of the brain and it produces something called TRH, which is thyroid releasing hormone, which tells the pituitary gland to stimulate the thyroid gland and release TSH. 
So one could imagine the hypothalamus as the person who regulates the thermostat since it tells the pituitary gland at what level the thyroid should be set, at what level the heat should be coming out. So we'll get into this a little bit later as well. Yeah, so we're going to give some like examples of stuff to kind of help you understand the whole process because, again, hormones can be really complicated or seem really complicated. Um, So we're going to try and simplify it using examples and stuff like that just to try and make it a little bit easier for you. Um, So there are common thyroid disorders that we see in menopause, hyper and hypothyroid. So hypo means an underactive thyroid. This occurs when the thyroid no longer produces enough of the T3 and T4 to keep the body functioning properly. If it's not treated, it can lead to a ton of issues like high cholesterol levels, osteoporosis, heart disease, and even depression. Some symptoms of hypothyroidism are similar to symptoms reported during the menopausal transition. So this can be things like fatigue, forgetfulness, mood swings, weight gain, irregular menstrual cycles, cold intolerance. Hypothyroidism directly affects the body's metabolic rate, which can make weight gain um, more common or really struggle to lose weight. Um, So doctors will usually test for high levels of TSH to indicate hypothyroidism. Um, So you can think that TSH is like trying to yell louder at your thyroid to produce more T3 and T4 because it's just not listening, kind of like your teenage daughter. So then there's hyperthyroidism, which is an overactive thyroid. And this occurs when the thyroid produces too much of its hormones. So some symptoms of hyperthyroidism can also mimic those of menopausal transition. So these are like hot flashes, heat intolerance, heart palpitations, um, tachycardia. So this is like persistent, really high heart rates, um, insomnia. And the most common sign of hyperthyroidism is unplanned weight loss um, and goiter. So enlarged thyroid gland. Um, hyperthyroidism can cause rapid weight loss in some people, but it's not a typical side effect that we see in perimenopausal women. So as you can see, like the symptoms of hyper and hypothyroidism are very, very similar to the things that start to happen when we're going through perimenopause and menopause. So again, a lot of people get dismissed or they're not tested for these things because doctors just assume, oh, it's a part of like the normal aging process. Oh, you just got to ride this out. Eventually things will level out. And no, it's not always going to level out. We have to be proactive and do things about it. And like, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be suffering with those symptoms for years and years and years. Perimenopause isn't just one year. That can last up to like 10 years for people when hormones start to fluctuate. Um, If you're dealing with thyroid issues, this is going to persist for a long time. So this is why getting tested, getting assessed, um, talking to like professionals who understand these things, who work in women's health and hormones is so important um, because it's just you getting sloughed off. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And then you're digging yourself a bigger hole to get out of, um, which again, we're going to talk about in a little bit here as well. Yeah. And I think it's so important to make sure that you're going to someone that you trust and also someone that does specialize or has a lot of knowledge with the menopausal stages. Just because there are so many hormones that play a role in all of these symptoms, and as you can see, like a lot of these symptoms overlap. So your thyroid and your estrogen and your progesterone, they're all related. They're all controlled by the pituitary gland. And so they all kind of have, you know, these overlapping symptoms or issues that we see, and you don't really know what exactly is going on or what exactly is causing it until you can at least talk to somebody that has knowledge in all of these different functional axes that are in your body, right? Mm-hmm. So thyroid disorders, most often hypothyroid or hyperthyroid, there are other disorders as, as well, they affect women more often than men. And so it's important to remember that from a holistic health perspective, 
Thyroid disorders are actually usually a symptom or a byproduct of something deeper. The thyroid is kind of like our indicator species in our body of like something else is going on and our thyroid is actually the one telling us that this is going wrong. This deeper thing usually is some form of stress. Um, and this kind of, you know, stress response in the body that ends up being chronically elevated for a lot of people, women especially, can cause autoimmune responses in the body. So remember that we talked earlier about the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland in the brain, because the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland also control the stress response and our cortisol output. So as you can see, there's so much relating here because the pituitary gland does everything to kind of control a lot of these hormone centers in the body. So Steph, let's touch on thyroid function and stress, because I know stress is your favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> I love talking about cortisol and stress. Like it is honestly the number one cause of like literally every issue that we're having. It is very rare that it is not. And if you're improving cortisol levels, typically everything else will really start to function significantly better. Um, and there's so many ways to address it. But Let's talk about it. This is like my favorite. So when cortisol levels are high, so we're stressed out from undereating, over-exercising, not getting enough sleep, cutting out our carbs, family, work, stress, financial stress, your dog pooped on the floor, whatever it is, we're just stressed, 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 stressed all of the time, which is going to keep our cortisol levels high. This is going to signal to the thyroid to stop producing as much thyroid hormone. Um, and this is because the pituitary gland stops producing enough TSH when it's busy telling the adrenals to produce cortisol instead. So it's like it's trying to multitask. It's actually not possible. You have to choose one or the other. So cortisol in the blood also restricts the conversion of T4 to T3, which if you remember is the active form that we use for energy. So we're not only not having enough thyroid hormone produced, we're actually slowing down the conversion of T4 to T3. So there's less usable thyroid hormone for us to actually use. So we can see how cortisol has a pretty direct effect on how the body functions with thyroid hormones because of a high stress response. We can see that chronically high stress will most likely cause a suppression in thyroid function over time. It can actually induce hypothyroidism and really slow down your metabolism. So like the way that I like to explain this, because I know it can be a little bit confusing, is your mom and you have your teenager who is Stacy and Stacy is your thyroid and you are yelling at Stacy to do her chores, do her chores, do her chores because you're constantly nagging her. She's doing it. She's like grumbling under her breath. She wants to go to a party instead, but she's doing it because you're like keeping your eye on her, keeping her in line, constantly on her. So she's doing what she's supposed to be doing. Then you have Jimmy and Jimmy is your adrenals. And Jimmy is that like four-year-old son who, if left unattended, will light your house on fire. So when you are stressed out, Jimmy starts to get fired up. He finds some matches, a lighter, some paper, whatever it is, and he is literally trying to burn your house down. So now you are no longer like focusing on Stacy and her chores. You are now focusing on Jimmy and trying to not let your house be on fire. Then Stacy is like, ah, this is my chance. This is my time. And she is like not doing her chores anymore. She's packing up some alcohol and some other bad things. She's jumping out your window. She's leaving. She's going to a party. She's being rebellious. 
So now the thyroid hormone is just completely stopped. There is no one doing the chores anymore. She is gone because you are so busy trying to make sure you still have a home to live in because Jimmy is trying to light it on fire. That's literally what's happening. You can't deal with both because one takes the priority. Um, and let's face it, keeping your house not burnt to the ground is more important than making sure it's clean. So that's kind of how your body functions that way. You are the pituitary that is trying to keep your thyroid hormone functioning and adequate levels. But then Jimmy is like throwing a wrench in things and you're just trying to like manage your life. And then your thyroid hormone, your daughter, Stacy is just gone. Um, so that's the way that I like to explain it because it can be kind of difficult to understand, but now you can see like Jimmy definitely takes the priority here. Um, we're just trying to like keep things afloat and like just kind of keep things where we need to be. Um, thyroid function is not a priority at this point anymore. And it's really important to note that chronic stress can be caused by so many things, including lifestyle stress, trauma that we hold in our body, grief, under eating, over exercising, so many things. Um, like for myself in particular, I lost my mom a little over a year ago and it is crazy how much grief takes a toll on you like a huge toll on you. Um, and it was to the point where like, I couldn't exercise the way I was exercising anymore because it was just too much. My body was so focused on just like trying to keep things at bay because my cortisol levels were super high. I was dealing with like work stuff. I was dealing with relationships. I was dealing with finances, so many things, trying to, you know, clean out my mom's house, figuring out what we were going to do with that. All, all the things. And it's just so much. Um, and it was also when I really went all in on this business, which was, again, super stressful and closing the clinic that I had previously and completely moving to the online space and hiring new coaches and all this stuff. And it's the exercise I couldn't do it anymore because it was too much of a stress. I was gaining weight super easily. I was super tired all the time. Um, I had to like force myself to eat because like my appetite was like completely suppressed because you're just running on stress hormones all the time. Um, and let's face it, that was definitely not good for my thyroid function. You can tell because if you have low thyroid levels, you do suffer with like fatigue and things like that. So you really have to be aware that it's not just like stress, stress of like, oh, I feel stressed out because of work finances, whatever. There's grief that you're dealing with for a really long time. Like I'm just getting to the point now where I'm feeling normal and like myself again. Um, there's tra past traumas. There's so many things that influence high cortisol levels. And it's really important to note that like during perimenopause and menopause, our stress tolerance decreases substantially. So it requires a lot less stress to cause our body to go, okay, pituitary, we need to pay attention to Jimmy here because it takes a lot less fuel for Jimmy to light the house on fire than it did before. Um, so that's just like something to be like super aware of. It's not just like, I feel stressed. You're, you might just be used to it, to be completely honest. Yeah, you might have like, I, I always, I love your analogy stuff. They're the best. You had three, you had Jimmy triplets um, for a while there. But when you go into perimenopause, it's almost like having Jimmy twins and they're both in separate rooms upstairs and you're downstairs and they've locked themselves in the closet trying to light stuff on fire. So it's a lot harder for you to get to them to deal with them because they're just like less accessible because you can't deal with them as well from a physical standpoint too. So oh, that's such a good way it. to like word it. I love that. Yeah, it's like as soon as you hit perimenopause, it's like not only are you more tired, but now you have twins instead of just like one <laughs> lunatic son trying to light yeah. the place on fire. There's two. So you that's like you can't handle a lot of other stressors because now both your arms are tied up with yeah. like trying to stop these kids from lighting your house on fire. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk about segue. Let's talk about thyroid and menopause connection. Um, so a research study from 2007 showed that women with a thyroid disorder and severe menopause experienced improved symptoms after getting treated just for the thyroid disorder. So this actually suggests that treating the thyroid disorder can help manage menopause symptoms and or that thyroid disorders can cause an onset of severe menopausal symptoms that you wouldn't see if your thyroid was actually fine and functioning properly. Um, before menopause, an imbalance in thyroid hormone levels, as described above, may also result in heavy or irregular menstrual periods or even absent periods. So if you're pre-menopause and you have period issues and you've had them for a while, there's, you know, that's probably a good chance that your thyroid might be involved in this. There is a hypothesis in the scientific community as more research begins to actually come out now that thyroid disorders may cause early onset menopause. So if you're getting menopausal symptoms before the age of 40 or in your early 40s, there's a high chance that it could actually be exacerbated or there could be a root cause of like a thyroid disorder maybe making it worse or bringing it on. Um, early onset of menopause can actually occur from high thyroid-releasing hormones, so TRH from the brain, in people with hypothyroidism. Of course, we don't really know a lot of mechanisms yet. The research is still kind of coming out. Um, I don't know if you've talked about this on your podcast yet, Steph, but you know, there's not a lot of research in women, especially menopausal women, because from a scientific standpoint, hormones are like always get in the way of an actual answer or like good results for studies, which is so frustrating the way that like people think about it in the medical community. Um, but the hypothesis right now is that the high TRH levels trigger the pituitary gland to release something called prolactin. Um, you may have heard of this if you've ever had babies because it actually is the hormone that helps us produce milk when we have kids. Yeah. And it's true about like the research being so terrible <laughs> when we're looking at perimenopause terrible. and menopause, Yeah, um, which is crazy because it's like estimated like a 2.5 billion women in, by 2025 are going to have, be in perimenopause, which is like absurd. Um, and there's more and more women going into perimenopause earlier because of like high stress lifestyles and chronic dieting and all these things that are just not good for us. Um, and like, it's it's so frustrating when you look at like studies and stuff. People are like, oh, we don't want to like this isn't a great study because like you have hormones that you have to like account for or women's cycles that you have to account for or like they could have fluctuating this and that. And it's like that's exactly why we need to do the research, because like we need to understand how those things influence stuff and vice versa. But uh, unfortunately, most of the research is done in men. It's very controlled. Um, and if it's done in women, it's done like super young or much older where there's not a ton of influence from hormones, which again is like such a huge issue and like why we care so much about this. Okay, so back to the prolactin. That was like a nice little sidebar there for us. Um, too much prolactin interferes with the ability of the ovaries to produce estrogen. Reduced estrogen can lead to some reproductive health symptoms and issues, including infrequent periods, absent periods, abnormal milky discharge from the breasts, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, infertility. And then in women with hyperthyroidism, too much thyroid hormone leads to increased SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin, which can prevent ovulation and is actually linked to PCOS. So as we can see, stress can do a lot 
to change how the brain communicates with the thyroid and our ovaries, which changes the way our body functions as we age, even when we think it's normal or natural. No, it's common, but it doesn't mean it's normal or natural. So we can see how interconnected the thyroid is with our reproductive health and our stress response. Um, there are, again, so many things that are going to influence everything. So Carrie Anna, I think a lot of women are probably asking, like, why do we have thyroid issues or why does it seem so common? So I'll let you touch on that. Yeah, and I think that's a good question. Um, why do especially women have have thyroid issues? Like, especially going into perimenopause, we find in our coaching um, that you know, and Steph, you can attest to this. Many women who go into perimenopause find out then that they have hypothyroidism as well, most of the time. So, uh, approximately one in eight women will be affected by a clinical thyroid condition at some point in their life. And we want to emphasize clinical because there are a lot of subclinical or, you know, thyroid conditions that are not detected for people's entire lives. Um, or, you know, things that don't come out of the woodwork for 10 or 15 years because doctors don't even think to look for them, right? Um, the risk, the risk for women is about 10 times higher than for men to get thyroid disorders. That's a huge statistic. 10 times higher risk is, is a lot. And the prevalence of thyroid disorders is highest in women over 60, the menopausal age. Uh, it's such a specific demographic and it's a really shocking statistic. So, you know, typical me, I wanted to dive deeper. I got into the rabbit hole of, you know, why are women suffering so much with this more than men or even younger women. So one scientific reason that I could find for this is that thyroid disorders are often triggered by autoimmune responses, which happen when the body's immune system starts to attack itself in some way. The immune system starts to, you know, get triggered by something internally as opposed to something externally like it should. Um, I'm sure most of us have heard of autoimmune conditions or, you know, we probably have one ourselves as well. But, you know, when I started looking into autoimmune conditions and why our body reacts like this, it kind of opened up a whole other Pandora's box for me. Typical, you go down the wormhole, right? So I did a little more digging and I kind of started asking, you know, why do women even experience more autoimmune issues than men? Because you don't see a lot of men with autoimmune conditions. There, there's not a lot of men out there that have them. So, you know, is there even an answer for us? We had just talked about how there's actually not a lot of research on women going on right now. There, there is definitely more in the last five to 10 years, but there's not a lot of like published peer reviewed information for us to go through from the last 20, 30 years for us to be able to figure out like why this is happening. It actually turns out there's a general consensus. I, I guess you could say a general hypothesis right now. Um, might not be the answer we want, but it's actually just because we are females. Um, so, you know, the, the ultimate answer, really simple, really shitty. If you ever took any basics genetics classes, you do know that females are born with two X chromosomes as opposed to males who are born with an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, which is what makes the male. It turns out that the X chromosome is actually associated with a greater amount of immune-related genes as well as immune regulatory genes, which aids and induces immunological responses in the body. So the larger number of genes originating from the X chromosome creates a far greater possibility of a larger number of mutations, or you could call them polymorphisms. So just different genes or genes that have different behaviors immunologically. So... 
This um, creates, you know, more immune issue genes possibly being expressed in women because we have just way more possibilities in that X chromosome, which puts us at a greater risk for the development of autoimmune diseases solely due to us having two X chromosomes, so double the chances of immune-related mutations or polymorphisms or like different genes being expressed. Um, so we basically get this double dose of genes present on the X chromosome that are immune-related, and because of this, it predisposes the female to autoimmunity issues and overreactions to stress than men. And as we can see, even just biologically speaking, women are far more sensitive to stress than men are, and the hypothesis for that is because we have to carry the children. No matter if you want kids or not, our bodies are biologically designed to carry kids, and so our bodies are probably always assessing the environment environment kind of seeing, hey, is this a safe time for me to be able to reproduce or not? And I know like we probably just ruined a bunch of people's day by <laughs> being like, because you were born with a vagina, you are right? more likely to have thyroid issues and autoimmune issues and women everywhere are like, cool, I can't change that. You just absolutely right? ruined my day. <laughs> I know. I ruined my own day when I found out. I was like, oh no, like what are we going to do about this? <laughs> yeah, no. And the rabbit hole can be dangerous sometimes. Like so you just dangerous. start digging and digging. And then before you know it, you're like 17 articles deep in the boonies and PubMed. And like, yeah, you're just like, oh man, the studies on your brain's just like, it's a lot. It's a lot, but it happens more often <laughs> to us than we like to admit. Um, okay, so I know, again, that we probably just, like, absolutely ruined your day. Sorry. Um, and I know that that's, like, a ton of information. And, like, now we are very aware that, yes, stress definitely affects our thyroid. It affects our hormone health, can put us into early menopause. Um, but So how what can we do to try and help with this? Because I know a lot of you guys are probably feeling incredibly hopeless. But lucky for you, we have a list of, like, six pretty simple things that you can do um, starting today to improve your thyroid function, improve your metabolism, improve your hormone health, um, all of those things to really put yourself in a better position and ultimately try and get those cortisol levels down to help with everything. So the first thing is to actually get tested regularly. For women over 40, it's really important to get blood work done on a semi, like a like annually, like do that regularly. Um, and stressors can cause shutdown in the body quite suddenly, and things can change a lot in a year. Um, it's important to not only get your TSH tested, um, but also ask your doctor to test T3 and T4, um, and if they'll even test it, because some people are like not even – you know, it's just hard sometimes with doctors. I really do. Like, you have to advocate really hard for yourself. But if you can, try and get them to check your reverse T3 and T, uh, thyroid antibodies as well. The more information you have, the better. Because depending on where those numbers are, it can tell us if it's, like, the thyroid's actually not, like, stimulated enough, if there's, like, a conversion problem, um, things like that. So it'll tell us where the actual issue is as opposed to just being, like, oh, your thyroid sucks. Um, we want to get as much information as we can. And again, especially as we're going through perimenopause and menopause, we go through so much change, becoming empty nesters, um, typically starting to take care of like sick parents. Sometimes there's like a career change. You start experiencing loss. Um, there are so many things that are already changing, not to mention you're also dealing with hormonal changes. So it's a lot of different stuff going on to you and to your body. Um, so it is really important to get tested on a regular basis. The second one is to eat enough. Um, I will scream this from the mountaintops forever because 
eating less calories is a stress on your body. So if you're eating fewer calories than you should um, or than you expend, this causes your thyroid to slow down, which is going to slow down your metabolic rate, which means you're burning less calories at rest. So eating enough calories will help keep your thyroid function optimal and keep your metabolism up, which I know sounds super backwards. And like we have this conversation with women in our program all of the time. Every day. I do not think we have, I think we've had one woman out of like the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women that we have helped, probably thousands now, actually, to be honest, um, thousands of women that we've worked with and talked with. There has only been, I think, one that we did not have to go into a reverse diet and get them eating more um, because it's been like constantly eating low calories, like women trying to chase fat loss for years and years and years, eating less than 1600 calories on a regular basis. Um, fat loss phases and eating in a deficit should really only be 12 weeks. There are very few people that I would put in a deficit for longer than that because it does affect everything so much. Um, it doesn't take that long of a deficit to affect your thyroid function, to affect your insulin levels, to affect your cortisol levels. Um, your body doesn't want to lose weight and it's super, super stressful on the body. And like what you were doing before in your twenties of like cutting your, your calories super low, um, now doesn't work as much because it's too much of our stress. We don't have that hormonal buffer anymore. So now we're seeing that like, you can't drop your calories as much because it's just too much on your body. And then your body just goes into a fat storing mode anyways. Um, yeah. like I always like to share how much I eat. Like I'm working with coach Carriana right now to like get in shape for the wedding, um, which is happening in July and is super exciting. But um, like I have been eating at my maintenance. I'm 5'5 and 145 pounds. Uh, I mean, I'm a first week into my cut and I'm at 143, which is really exciting. Um, but like I'm 5'5 and 145 pounds. I only work out like three days a week, sometimes four if I'm feeling super ambitious, but like sometimes that's two. Um, I don't get 10,000 steps in a day. Kiriana can attest to that. That only happens when I'm on vacation. Usually it's like 4,000, 5,000 on a good day because I'm sitting here doing this stuff. Um, I eat 2,200, 2,400 calories a day and like 200 plus grams of carbs on a regular basis. Um, so like if you weigh more, if you have more stress, the more active you are, the more calories you're going to need. Um, so I know that sounds like a lot of food, but it's, it's really not, it's great. Um, and then to lose weight right now, I'm at 1950, um, which again, a lot of people aren't even eating that on a regular basis. Um, I know Carriana, you've been like tracking your food and stuff lately. Where's like, what are your stats? How much do you eat? Where are you at? Yeah, that's a really good question. I will say before I talk about my intake, I think it's really important to know that every single body is different. And there's so much more research that's coming out now that can help us, you know, figure out that everyone's metabolism is so different, no matter what size you are. So, you know, generally speaking, we'll have people that come into the program and they're five foot nothing, four foot 11, like they're very tiny people. And, you know, some, some of those tiny people can eat far more calories than we even expect that they can eat because they just naturally or genetically have a faster metabolism than some other people. I have always found myself, I have a bit of a slower metabolism. It can handle a little bit, but it's not like, you know, a fire house, a powerhouse like some of these other people that I've seen. I actually had a, a client a few years ago. We cut her on 3000 calories. She was a machine. I do not know where she put those calories, but like she would lose like two, three pounds a week on like 3000 calories. And I was like astounded. I cannot do that. My brain um, literally just went, I would eat so much bread and pasta. Oh right? my goodness. Oh, she did. She ate so much, that. like so many carbs. It was so great. I felt, I was so happy for her because it's just so great to be able to like eat that much and still be able to lose fat. Oh, um, what a life. Right now, I know. 
Right now, my maintenance is usually between like 2000 and 2200-ish. Um, I usually get a little bit higher on the weekends just because we tend to go out for like dinner or like, you know, happy hour appetizers or something like that because we just... We are very much into balance and like, I really want to enjoy my life while still, you know, being able to maintain what I have and being really happy with it. So, uh, I probably average between like, you know, 21 to 2300, you know, on average. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to say to add to your, what you were saying, Steph, I think it's really important to realize too, that even if you think you're eating enough, you're probably not eating enough for your body. And it's really important to get assessed or talk to someone who is really familiar with how stress can affect the body because people don't realize that high stress actually requires more calories in order to help mitigate it, especially going into perimenopause because we don't have those hormones anymore to help us deal with that stress reaction and that cortisol in your body. Yeah, exactly. And like, like when my mom passed away, for example, like I was eating, like I was forcing myself to eat. So I'm like, if I don't, I am going to end up with so many issues, yeah. which I still think I did, um, mm-hmm. like for sure. But uh, like I tracked eat, and it wasn't for like weight loss. It was like, I need to make sure I'm making like a minimum that I don't mess up my body. Um, so like, it's not, you're not just tracking for weight loss. A lot of times it's like, we're tracking to make sure like your hormones are good. Your metabolism is good. You're sleeping better. Your energy is great. We're not having our crashes in the afternoon. Like there are so many other reasons to like focus on like your food intake and it's not eating less. It's usually eating more. Like it's, yeah, yeah, it's wild. Yeah. And more consistently. And as you're probably going to talk about soon, like eating more carbs too. People are so afraid of carbs. Yeah. So the next point, so the first one was get tested regularly. The second was eat enough. The third, eat your damn carbs, you guys. Oh my goodness. I say this all the time. I say this to like every client we've ever had, but carbohydrates actually contribute to a healthy thyroid and metabolism. Studies have shown that even when calories are adequate, people who are on a ketogenic diet had a significantly lower thyroid function than people who ate carbs. So you had the same amount of calories per day, but for those who are on a low carb diet, you had a significantly reduced thyroid function. So, of course, this doesn't mean go crazy with your carbs. I'm not saying, like, stuff your face with a billion donuts, which, like, I would, but I know better, so I don't. Um, but, like, make sure you're keeping your protein up. Choose, like, higher fiber carb options when you're, option, when you're able to. Um, making sure calorie intake is consistent. These are all important for overall health. But, like, eat your carbs. Carbs also help bring your cortisol levels down. So not only is... The way carbs help with thyroid function is like, okay, so we know Jimmy is trying to burn the house on fire, but you know what Jimmy loves? Carbs. If you give Jimmy some pasta, he will put that lighter down. He will be super happy. Your cortisol levels go down, and then you can start yelling at Stacy again to do the dishes or vacuum or whatever it is. Carbs keep Jimmy happy. It keeps those cortisol levels down, and then you're good. That totally makes sense. I just came up with an analogy in my head and I freaking love it. I'm going to use it. it all the time. <laughs> I love it. Carbs put Jimmy to sleep. Jimmy's going to go take a nap now, okay? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I know a lot of people are like, well, what kind of carbs can I have? Um, you can have pasta. You can have bread. You can have fruit. You can have oats. You can have potatoes. You can have white potatoes. Lots of people have better blood sugar responses with white potatoes than sweet potatoes. Um, You can have rice. You can have quinoa. Like there are so many options. Like what are your favorite carbs, Carriana? We're big fans of pasta. 
Um, my, my boyfriend, Derek is a great cook and the very first dinner he ever made me was a shrimp scampi. Oh my God. Like I beg for it like every few weeks and he's been promising me shrimp scampi for the last like month. And every time we do our meal prep, he's like, oh no, we can't. Like we have all this in the fridge that we have to eat. And I'm like, no, like it keeps getting pushed back. But yeah, we're big pasta fans. So we love pasta, love bread, love sandwiches. Soup and sandwiches are one of my favorites. Oh, so good. I will eat all the, I'm just like you, like I will eat all the carbs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that I feel a lot better eating carbs. So if I'm Mm -hmm. low carb, I'm like super emotional. I am crabby. I'm grumpy. Like I can't handle things. I remember, and I told you this story before, but I remember when I was in, I used to do some bikini competitions. I was in competition prep. I was eating super low calorie, super low carb. And the way that I dictated how my mood was going to be that day is if my oatmeal overflowed in the microwave. Because if it overflowed in the microwave, I was done for. I was like, I'm going back to bed. I would literally start crying. I would start sobbing because my my oatmeal was ruined and I had to clean out the microwave. And it really... Carbs really mean more than you think they do for, like, the way that your body functions. (laughs) And, like, mentally, too, honestly. Like, carbs are so good. Yes. Um, Speaking about oatmeal, like, overflowing in the microwave, um, I love to cook. Taylor says I'm a great cook. I feel like I'm mediocre. Like, I do well if I'm, like, focused. Um, I cannot microwave oatmeal to save my life. It's a finesse thing. It is so challenging. Like, I've done it. I did it once and he's like, what are you doing? There's like too much liquid in there. And then he's like, oh yeah, kids, what's for, what's for supper? Oh, it's oatmeal soup. And I'm like, okay, leave me alone. <laughs> Cut me some slack. Then the other night I was trying to make it and I opened the microwave and I just burst out laughing. Cause like, I think it's hilarious that I can cook like some really good meals, but like I can't microwave oatmeal oh, to save my life. Just your kryptonite. Oh yeah. And it overflowed everywhere. And he started laughing. He looked at me. He's like, I love you so much, but I will never understand how you can be such a good cook, but you cannot microwave oatmeal. He's like, for our kids, I'm not letting you cook their oatmeal. Like, this is something that I will just do. And I'm like, you know what? You can have that responsibility. That's fine by me. They'll just grow up thinking that oatmeal is supposed to be soup. (laughs) Literally so bad. Okay. So we've covered, we've covered getting tested, eating enough food, eating enough carbs, The next one is de-stress and self-care. We say this a lot, but stress is the cause of literally 99% of all the problems that we have. Um, And it's in charge of like all the illnesses that we have, disorders in women in particular. And from the X chromosome factor we talked about, it makes sense that we need to take more time to ourselves. Um, So this doesn't mean like you have to meditate because like even in yoga, like at the end when they're like, oh, just relax and breathe. I am already making a list of like the bajillion things that I have to do. So like doing that kind of stuff does not work for me. Um, I would rather do journaling. I'd rather like read for fun. I would rather go for like a light walk, um, do some like stretching or mobility, doing feet up on the wall. Um, There are so many things that you can do just to get yourself out of fight or flight and like actively try and bring those cortisol levels down where we're literally just focusing on bringing your breathing rate down and bringing your heart rate down. This is like super, super important. Um, things that you can take like ashwagandha is an adaptogen that has some promising research behind it that can help with your stress response and potentially your thyroid function. However, you do have to be careful because ashwagandha is contradicted for a lot of thyroid medications. So that is something that you should talk to your practitioner about. Um, but Carriana, what are your favorite like de-stress self-care? Like I like doing like massages, obviously, but like 
for me, it's like a light walk or like doing some stretching, mobility, reading. Like that's what I find helps me a lot. Yeah, I think um, everyone's de-stressing is going to be different. I always say do what makes you feel the best or like what has worked for you before. However, there are very specific ways that you can do something to stimulate something called the vagus nerve, which is a nerve in your brain that actually helps us regulate our stress response and gets us out of fight or flight. Um, One thing that I will always say, and I will preach this till the end of my days, is I always tell my clients, you need to be intentional about your self-care and your de-stressing, and you need to schedule it in the same way that you plan your nutrition and the same way that you plan your workouts, because it is just as important, if not more important, to all of your future success in the way that your body is functioning. Um, massages are great. Uh, some people, you know, all they need to do is repetitive movement. So walking can be really helpful to help bring your body out of that fight or flight mode, not running. It's not no high intensity workouts. You're chasing cortisol and dopamine at that point. Like that is not okay. I know Steph, you always talk about people who are cortisol junkies. Um, Big time. Yeah. So making sure you're doing something calming is really important. Getting out in nature, Um, Some people do grounding. So like put your bare feet in the grass. I think that's a really good idea to help just relax you, you know, get your brain out of that fight or flight mode. I'm a big fan of massages. Um, I'm also a really big fan of of just like taking baths. I have to like force myself to take baths because it's such a chore to me. I can't Um, do it. Oh, I can't it do is it. such a chore. I have to put like Netflix or something on or like read a book or something like that. Like I, I definitely just need doing a bit in your of a distraction. I can't do it. Like I just, how, I think it's so gross. You're just How dirty are it. you? <laughs> it's just gross. <laughs> that sounds is terrible. The water, is the water brown when you get in stuff? <laughs> I don't know. For me, I just can't find it relaxing. And like, I feel like it takes me longer to fill the tub than like me sitting in it. And then if it's like too hot, I'm like sweaty, but in water and uncomfortable. Like same with hot tubs. Like, I can be in them for like a little bit, but it's just, it's too uncomfortable for me. Yeah. Yeah. I can't do, I can't do like public hot tubs because I learned one time, I think it was on like a ridiculous medical show, like Dr. Oz or something that STDs can be, and like infections can transfer through hot water. I don't know if it's actually true. I probably shouldn't say that on like our very evidence-based podcast, but like I've never, (laughs) never ever in my life have I done a public hot tub after learning that. Um, But I found out a trick actually from one of my exes um, to fill the bathtub as you're draining it slowly. So it recycles the water for you and it's all fresh the whole time. So you have to fill it and then drain it at the same time. So slow fill, slow drain. And apparently that, that keeps the water fresh for when you're really dirty and it's brown (laughs) apparently for you. So (laughs) I I can't do baths. I can't do it. They're just super not relaxing for me. I can just think of a billion things I'd rather do. I have a, I've heard that you should shower before you bath. Do you do that? Or is that too much work? Because that seems like a lot of work for me. That's that's a lot of effort. I feel like a bath is pretty much a shower anyway. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not about it. I'm not about it. And then also about like the exercise, like people are like, oh, I like to rent a de-stress. Wrong. Um, that is just you again, like Carriana said, like being like a cortisol junkie and adrenaline junkie, it's just not in the way that you think. Um, it's not like a dangerous risk, but it's, it brings those cortisol levels up and it has to do with like the endorphins that come with increased cortisol that like people like are addicted to. So you feel like it makes you feel better, but you don't like, it's just what your body's used to. It's just like how we end up going. Like if you've had like a really bad traumatic relationship or childhood trauma and you keep dating the same guy in different shapes and forms. And it's just like, because that's what you're comfortable with. It's predictable. You know what you're going to get out of it, even though it doesn't actually make you happy and it's not actually healthy for you, but you're like addicted to that. Like, you know what's coming. So that's why you like that. You like the predictability. It's the exact same thing when you're like 
doing the Orange Theory, the HIT classes, the boot camp circuits, running, all that kind of stuff. It's the exact same thing. So it's not actually like relaxing. You're just comfortable in it. So it's it's not actually as good for you as you think it is. It's not a form of self-care in terms of like bringing your cortisol levels down. Yeah. And when cortisol binds to its receptor in your body, wherever the cortisol receptor is, because it's everywhere in your body, um, it actually triggers the release of dopamine. So uh, people think that it helps de-stress them, but it's just that temporary high, just like emotional eating that people get where it makes you feel good in the moment, but it actually makes you feel worse long term. Yeah. Like long term, it's not that great for you. Um, next one is increasing iodine. So adequate levels of iodine will help produce thyroid hormones, um, because the range over the last 10 years over, because of the rage over the last 10 years of the Himalayan and sea salt being quote unquote healthier, many people have stepped away from using regular table salt. However, table salt is iodized because we used to have iodine problems um, in the old days. So it can be really helpful thing just to shake it onto meals. Um, also seaweed products like seaweed snacks can also be high in iodine. But like, yeah, everyone was all the rage about like these pink Himalayan sea salts and stuff like that. It's like, just use your reg- regular table salt. Um, everyone's like so scared of salt, but it's actually not as bad for you as you think it is. Um, it's actually really important for like electrolyte balance and like hydration balance. It's actually good to have like a little bit of salt before workouts too. Um, everyone's so, so afraid of table salt and you really shouldn't be. Yeah. I switched back to table salt. Actually. I used to be all into the Himalayan salt. I thought it was like so much better for me. There's some like different minerals in it and the amount of minerals that are in it are so inconsequential to the actual amount that you need to see any kind of benefit from them. Plus the lack of iodine for me, it just made me switch back to, I'll we'll still use like flake salt and stuff, but um, switching back to sea salt was probably one of the best things I ever did. I will say, I also noticed that my energy in the gym is so much worse if I don't have salt before a workout. Yeah, like I've been using like electrolytes quite a bit actually, like yeah. that have sodium and stuff like that in it. And it makes a huge difference. Like huge. when I'm playing volleyball, like if I don't, I am like second set. I'm just like, how did we used to do this as kids and like literally not eat or like drink anything between games at like tournaments? I'm like, how like lit like how did we do this? I don't understand. I'm like, <laughs> I bring like we play like two games back to back. So we'll play like four like four to six sets. Um, and sometimes there's like a break in between, but it's like how, like I can't, if I forget a snack, <laughs> I'm like texting people. I'm like, who lives close by? Who could bring me a granola bar? Cause like, this is not going to end well. Plus I'm so <laughs> mean. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like it's brutal. <laughs> um, it's wild. Like super yeah. wild. <laughs> it's, it's called getting older. You have to like thread the needle so much more as you get older to like you take care of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like my, uh, my friend Becky, when we used to like whatever, go out with like friends or something, or we go to like an event or even like nicer events and stuff. She would have like (laughs) kid snacks from her kids in her purse. Um, She still does this for me. Like if we go to like whatever conferency things or whatever, um, she will literally have fruit snacks and granola bars in her purse for me. Um, And then her friend asked if she could borrow a purse. So one night we're going out for like a nice supper and she's like, oh, you, you left some of your your fruit snacks and granola bars for your kids in here. She's like, oh, no, keep those in there. They're for Steph. And I was those like, for Steph. <laughs> like, thank you. So she actually told Taylor um, that now that we're engaged, that that is his responsibility. So he needs to start putting like snacks in his fanny pack when we're out and stuff because um, it's she she's not to be relied on anymore. She's passing the torch over. Oh, man. Bless you, <laughs> Becky. Becky is the friend that everyone needs. Yeah, she's she's the mom of the group. She's great. I love her so much. I love that. 
Okay, and the number six is movement. So walking daily can help energize you and keep thyroid levels adequate. Resistance training has also been shown to increase thyroid function as well, so don't forget those weights. When we're approaching resistance training, we want to make sure that we're taking enough rest time in between because what happens is like we're doing these like circuit boot camp style classes and basically you're just doing cardio with weights, which is going to exponentially increase your cortisol levels. We want to make sure that we are taking like anywhere from 90 seconds to three minute breaks in between your sets. Um, So you do your squats, you take your break, you literally sit, you're not skipping, you're not jumping, you're not doing burpees or all all these crazy things anymore. You're just going to sit. And let your heart rate come down, let your energy stores recover so you can get more out of your workout, bring those cortisol levels down. And it's really important to note that you're going to get way more out of that workout if you have those rest periods, because when we're going through perimenopause and menopause, we can't access energy stores as easily. So getting that time for replenishment is actually super, super important so you can get more out of your workouts. You also want to focus on getting stronger. That's how we build muscle mass. Um, and again, during perimenopause and menopause when estrogen decreases, now we have a reduced ability to build and put on muscle mass. And when that goes down, we're going to see thyroid function decreases. We're going to see metabolism starts to slow down and we don't want those things. So longer rest periods, lift heavy weights, throw away those little pink weights, try and get stronger. Like if you're aiming for eight to 10 reps, you should feel like you can't lift that weight more than like 12 to 13 times. And I can guarantee you those little pink two pound dumbbells that you're using, you could probably lift like 30 times in a row. So time to retire those, go for your heavy weights, do some walking instead, bring on the intensity. You'll be shocked at how much better you feel. Um, Carrie, I know that you've had like lots of clients with thyroid issues and stuff like that as well. Um, or people who have been like low calorie and go, go, go all the time. I know I have, but like, has there been clients that you've been like, okay, we actually need to just walk for like a few weeks and do zero like cardio, do zero like crazy weight training, no CrossFit, whatever. Um, because it's just, it's too much that you can't catch up. Yes, absolutely. So I think there's a very fine balance with hypothyroidism where we have to make sure we're not pushing ourselves too much in terms of volume. Um, and also making sure that our immune system, because again, it's, it's kind of immunologically related, make that, make sure that our immune system can kind of keep up with us instead of releasing all of those inflammatory cytokines with all of the stress that we're putting on our bodies. Unfortunately, with hypothyroidism, for most people, even on medication, your threshold for all of that stress and inflammation is a lot lower than the normal person. Um, so there are some times when, you know, people do have to, I have clients that do have to take a week off or they do have to take a week where they're just doing general movement instead of doing the lifting. Or, you know, I think something is always better than nothing, but making sure that you're only doing one to two workouts a week, especially starting out can also help you recover. I do find a lot of people with hypothyroidism tend to get really sore after workouts and like really sore for a long time. So their bodies are like just trashed after a heavy, heavy, long workout for like probably a week. So being careful with the amount of volume that you put in your workouts is also really important if you do have hypothyroidism or any kind of thyroid disorder and that is just a consideration. So maybe keep your workouts to like 30 to 40 minutes uh, instead of that 45 to 60 minutes that everyone thinks they need to have in order to get a good workout in. Yeah. And like, especially like it's important to be aware that when you do work out, it does elevate your cortisol levels. It does break down muscle, which is like micro tearing, which is going to result in inflammation. It's going to result in some fluid retention. And these are things that we already struggle with during perimenopause and menopause. And it's something that like when we have our thyroid issues, we can't buffer that as well anymore. So it's really important to be aware that like you might feel good, 
but you still have to like really tailor back the intensity because the only way you're going to know if you push too hard is like if you feel like trash the following days. So it's better to start out slow and like slowly build up that threshold just because you're not super sore or super sweaty after a workout. Does not, that's not an indication if it was a good workout by any means. Um, that doesn't mean you're not going to make progress. Um, like I very rarely feel like super sweaty or feel like crazy sore after a workout. Um, because that's not a good indication. Should you feel like you worked a little bit? Yes. But like, if it totally knocks you on your butt, like that's not, that's wasn't a good workout for you. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And so if, if you have workouts that you're always sore after, it's an indication of a bad training program for you. It's not a bad training program for everybody, but your body is telling you that it's probably not able to properly recover even though we kind of unfortunately, you know, used to use this metric of, oh, I'm sore after a workout. That means it was a good workout. No, it doesn't. If you're sore all the time, you can be sore after different workouts, like new stimulus, but being sore after doing the exact same thing after, you know, a month or two months or even a year, and you're always sore, that definitely means that you're training, you need to scale back. Well, and anyone can make like a challenging, sweaty, sore workout for you it's not that hard um if that's how you're like dictating if like your trainer is good that's not a good indication because like if i want to make you feel like garbage after i'm gonna just toss in some unnecessary running some unnecessary jumping um some burpees like that's a way to easily make a workout harder make you sore and make you feel like you worked really hard that doesn't mean that it's effectively going to get you closer to your to your goals. Like the way training programs need to be is there has to be intention behind it. There has to be a purpose. Why are you doing each exercise? How is that going to stimulate change? Can your hormones handle it? Are you eating enough to like match the demands that you need? Cause that's also going to influence things. So like, just be like, anyone can make a workout hard. Anyone can make a workout challenging and sweaty and make you sore. That does not mean it's the right workout for you. Yes. Nope. Totally agree. Um, I definitely think that people overthink their workouts for sure. Short workouts are good, especially if you have any kind of autoimmune condition. Um, But I also think there's a very fine line with people with hypothyroid or people with any kind of autoimmune condition that have chronic pain, like, you know, fibromyalgia or anything like that, where we get into this situation where our body's always tired and it prevents us from wanting to work out or to get active. Um, and it's kind of about finding that balance between we do need to push ourselves a little bit out of this comfort zone in order to stimulate more energy and stimulate more like mitochondrial action in your body to make sure you do have more energy. So sometimes pushing past that low energy state to exercise or to get out on that walk will actually give you more energy throughout the day. Um, but then also, you know, not going too far and making yourself completely tanked and completely sore for the next week is is kind of a fine balance that you're going to have to figure out for your personal body. Exactly. So in summary, for like the six things that you can do to help with your thyroid function, to lower cortisol and improve your metabolism is to get tested regularly, eat enough food. If you need help calculating that, you can contact us. We do this for free all the time. Um, make sure that you're eating enough carbohydrates, focusing on de-stress and self-care, increasing your iodine intake and getting the right kind of movement in. So next, Kariana, what are some tests that measure thyroid levels? So there are several blood tests that can measure your thyroid levels and assess how, how well your thyroid is maybe working. Um, these tests are often called thyroid function tests. And, you know, depending on which doctor you're going to will depend on what they're willing to do for you. Also, depending on your healthcare system, I know Canada is very different than the States as well. Um, but ideally, what you do want to get with a thyroid function test would be to include a total T4 test, a free T4 test, 
total T3 test, a free T3 test, and then also your TSH test, which most people, most doctors will test. That is kind of the standard is that TSH test. Um, your provider may order additional tests to assess your thyroid function. So those additional tests that we had, you had kind of touched on earlier, Steph, would be the thyroid antibodies. So these tests help identify different types of autoimmune thyroid conditions because certain antibodies are released in certain levels depending on what particular autoimmune condition you might have. And then as well as a test called thyroglobulin. This test is used to diagnose thyroiditis, which is thyroid inflammation, um, which is to monitor the treatment of thyroid cancer. So thyroiditis is sometimes the precursor to a thyroid disease. And so making sure you detect that, or if you have a family history of thyroid issues, would probably be a good idea to try to ask your provider to get that tested as well. Perfect. I think we have covered so much stuff on thyroid today. Um, I hope that everyone finds this super helpful. Um, I am always so happy to have Carrie on the podcast. So we're going to have her on again for sure. Oh, I can't um, wait. And some of the other coaches as well um, that work with Vitality. Um, but any last like closing remarks in terms of like biggest advice, if there's one takeaway that they could take away from this episode in improving their thyroid function, especially during perimenopause and menopause, what would it be? Oh, only one step. I know. I know. We just <laughs> talked about six. I know. Um, like the one, The thing that you think would make the biggest impact. Uh, make sure that you are, uh, eating nutritionally to support yourself. So for most people, as we said, you're usually not eating enough and you're not eating enough consistently. And there is, you know, in our coaching business, we find two stuff that there is so much that we can do in terms of nutrition support that solves so many symptoms or like maybe even root causes that you don't even realize. So eating enough, I would say, is probably the primary thing um, that really helps us fix HPA axis dysfunction, which is our stress response, and the way that our pituitary gland communicates with things. Like we've had clients that thought they're in per perimenopause, and we feed them enough, enough quality nutrition on a consistent basis, and all of a sudden their menstrual cycle is back, and they're like, oh, I guess I wasn't in perimenopause. I guess it was just stress. Um, so I definitely think like proper nutrition support is the best way to start to treat or heal any kind of autoimmune or stress-related or disease-related or thyroid-related condition always. No, I agree 100%. Like eating enough, eating enough carbs has been like the most monumental change that we see in women for sure. Because like immediately, typically we see no more energy crashes in the afternoon. Sleep is better. Hot flashes start to decrease. Yep. Like it, people just feel better. They're happier. They're like, oh man, like my husband doesn't hate me anymore. This is fantastic. Like he's like, this is great. <laughs> or like libido starts to come back. There are so many things like all these menopausal symptoms that like women are struggling with and thyroid symptoms and stuff like that can be like just symptoms of under eating. Like yes. there's so much crossover there that it's like, maybe you don't actually have these things. Like it's important to get tested hundred percent. We've talked about that, but mm -hmm. sometimes it's literally just symptoms of not eating enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Crazy stuff. Okay. So as always, we're going to wrap it up here again. Thank you so much for hopping on with me today, Carianna, and, uh, we will talk soon. Thanks for having me on Steph. Bye. <laughs>